The priest will come from Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. You can begin turning there. It's Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through Inspired word of God reads as follows. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone in your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he had hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of Beth Melo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal in his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Malo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the God stands forever. Amen. Yes, amen. Thank you, brother. Let us pray and ask God's blessing upon us this morning as we seek to understand his way and his will from his word. Heavenly Father, once again, we have come to this appointed time in this appointed place. We do pray that you would be glorified. You'd be glorified by doing your work, a mighty work, the work that only you can do, and that is to open our blinded eyes and to soften our hard hearts toward you and your word and your way. Give us ears, Lord, to hear what your spirit is proclaiming to us this morning. And might we, Lord, according to your power and strength, be faithful. Be faithful in loving and worshiping and serving the Christ who has redeemed us. Might he be glorified. Might he be magnified in this place, in every heart. And might the redeemed leave here saying so. We pray it in his holy name. Amen. Well, we've reached chapter 9 in our trek through Judges, and we've come upon the account of Gideon's son, Abimelech. I was going over this just this week, and indeed the last couple of weeks, and being reminded of the story of Abimelech, and I am reminded of the truth that we've all heard before. And that is that the fruit does not fall far from the tree. The fruit does not fall far from the tree. In other words, you can tell what type of tree you have oftentimes just going around the bottom and looking at the fruit that has fallen from its limbs. Now this is a truth that we all know is a little too close for comfort oftentimes. But we all know, we all know, if those of us who have children, we all know that our children are not much different from us. Yes, that's a little too close for comfort sometimes, I understand. But our children are really not that much different from us. In fact, you are not much different from your parents. Your children are much different from you. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought if you think about it long enough. For those of us who are parents, we look at our children from time to time and we wonder, where did they come from? And in our most honest moments, we can say with all assurity, they got that from their mother. That must be the case. Our parents, we as parents have a huge impact on our children just as our parents have had a huge impact on us and our personality traits and our struggles. It's inevitable. And sometimes, don't you, sometimes you just wonder just how huge is the, uh, the sense of humor that God has. That how he delights to give us children just like we were. 
This past week, I was talking with a gentleman, and his kids were around us, and he looked at me, and he said, where did they come from? Where did they get that? I looked at him, and I said, brother, they get it right from you. They are not much different than you are. I've seen it in my own family, and I know you've seen it in yours. I've seen the, the struggles that my father has had, had in his life, and I see those struggles working out in my brother's life, and I've seen those struggles work themselves out in my life as I am daily struggling with some of the very same things that I saw in my father. Then I look at my own son and I see the struggles that he has oftentimes. And I see not only myself in those struggles, but I also see my father. Because that fruit does not fall far from the tree. And oftentimes what we see in seed form in one generation, we see fully blossom. And the next. And oftentimes our children not only pick up on what's best in us, beloved, but they pick up on what is worse in us. We see this all throughout the scriptures. We can look at it in our own lives and in our family lives, but we see it in the scriptures as well. We see it with Adam and Eve when they give birth to Cain. We see it with Abraham when he has Isaac, and Isaac when he has Jacob. We see it with David as he, gives, as he raises up Absalom. We see it in Hezekiah as his son is the infamous Manasseh. This list could go on and on and on and on, but it tells us a couple of things that I want to put in your hearing this this morning. It tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us that it is possible and frankly, it frequently is the case that those who walk with God often have children who don't. That's a sobering thought. And our parents who walk with God and grieve this day that the children don't. But not only tells us that they are, they are parents who walk with God and their, and their children don't, but it also reminds us that just how diligent we must be. How diligent we must be in not only speaking the gospel, but living the gospel. And aware that though there are those around us, whether it's our children or our co-worker or our sisters or our brothers, who pick up not only on what we say, but they are watching and they're picking up on what we do. And how important it is. That we understand that the message that we preach is not only coming from our lips, but it's coming from our lives. And this we see here in Abimelech. And we could easily say, like father, like son, 
only worse. Abimelech, as we've seen from chapter 8 last, last week's message, that Abimelech is Gideon's son. He is Gideon's son. He is the fruit, as we saw last week. He is the fruit of Gideon's apostasy. Abimelech, Abimelech sees this upon the death of his father Gideon, who is referred to in this text here as Jerubal. And he takes advantage of, of this situation, his father's death, and he makes himself king. But we do understand that Abimelech is no king at all. He is no judge. Abimelech is a liar. Abimelech is a murderer. And unlike the previous judges, Abimelech is not raised up by God. As we had seen prior to in chapter 2, God says that I would raise up judges. And he did. He raised up Othniel. He raised up Ehud. He raised up Barak. He raised up Gideon. But when it comes to Abimelech, the Bible does not say that God raised Abimelech up, but it shows us that Abimelech raised himself. Seizing upon the opportunity, the the vacuum that was left in the nation for leadership when his father died. And he gladly and joyfully and deceptively walks into it. He raises himself up to be king through lie and deceit and murder. And therefore he demonstrates who his father really is. Not Gideon. Satan himself. Is that, that, is that not what Jesus says? He reminds us in John chapter 8, in verse 44, that the devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And those who engage in such behavior are of their father, the devil. And so we see here that Gideon more, that, that Abimelech more than being Gideon's son, he is, or he is rather the son of the devil himself. And he's a false king, which means he is no king at all. He is not a judge, as we've seen in the cycle of judges. God does not raise up Gideon to deliver Israel. There is no outside enemy. You remember with all of the previous judges that there was always an outside enemy. There was always a nation or some king that was terrorizing, that was oppressing Israel. And they would cry out for God's deliverance and God would have mercy and he would send a deliverer. He'd raise up a deliverer and the deliverer would conquer the enemy and deliver Israel. Well, beloved, in this text, there is no outside enemy. In fact, Abimelech himself is the enemy. He has crept into the nation like a thief. He has crept into the nation like a a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is not only a false king, but he is a phony king. He's a phony king because, get this, even if there was a kingdom left to the sons of Gideon, it would not have fallen to Abimelech. 
It would not have fallen to Abimelech because Abimelech is not the son of one of Gideon's wives. He is the son of Gideon's servant. And Abimelech knows this. He knows that even if there is a rightly kingdom that should fall to the sons of Abimelech, it would, of, of Gideon, it would never fall to him. He is not only the son of Gideon's servant, but his mother is not only is not from Israel. She's from Shechem. She's a Shechemite woman. And therefore, he has no rights. He has no rights above his brothers who are born to Gideon's wives. And yet, this doesn't deter him. This doesn't frustrate him. This doesn't deter uh, Abimelech and his ambitions. For as his father was determined to destroy the enemies of Israel, so Abimelech proved himself determined to exalt himself. And like a thief and like a hireling, as Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, the enemy of God's people, Jesus says, comes in like a thief to kill and to steal and to destroy. So too Abimelech comes in upon the nation of Israel in their weakness to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And this is like his father. Not so much Gideon. But his father, the devil. Abimelech steals. You see this in verses 1 through 3. We are reminded that there in those verses that he manipulates the people and he steals their trust. He steals their confidence. Before, you, you notice as we looked at the other accounts, before the enemy was outside the nation, but now the enemy is one of their own. He, he dupes his family. He dupes them into believing that he is the one to rule over them. Out of all of Gideon's son, out of all of his 70 sons, he is the one to rule over them. He understood. He understood his name to be my father is king, as we saw last week. And he wanted all of his family to take that name literally. My father was king, and therefore, I'm the one. Who is now to reign. And so he undermines, he undermines the integrity of the nation. He abuses their good faith. He tricks them. He tricks them into believing that he has their best interest at heart. And therefore he steals their trust and soon he will steal their lives. He gets them, he gets them to enter into this pact with him whereby they would give him money so that he could seal the deal. And he seems believable. He has a certain charisma about him. He has the ability to speak in such a way that would be convincing, that would engender somebody's trust in him. And so they not only say yes, but then they give him money. He seems trustworthy. After all, they look at him and they say, 
He's one of us. He's one of us. He is deceitful. But this we should be reminded is the very nature of sin, is it not? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 3 that sin indeed is deceitful. Someone has rightly said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And here is Abimelech coming to the people of Shechem and and showing them and deceiving them, getting them to believe in him. But what they don't realize is that he's going to cost them more than they want to pay. He's going to take them further than they want to go. That is the nature of the enemy, beloved. That is the nature of sin. It comes in, and it comes in like a thief, but it doesn't come in and pronounce, I'm the devil. He doesn't come in and pronounce, I want to take you to hell. Sin doesn't operate like that in our lives, but it comes in deceitfully making these huge promises. Someone has rightly said that sin has a diminishing factor to it. It always gives its best at the beginning. It never gets better. It always gets worse. And those of us who are honest this morning who've been in the trap of sin, nobody purposely goes into sin thinking, I'm going to get trapped in here. why the writer of Hebrews says be careful be mindful of sin's deceitfulness it makes big promises in the beginning but it has a diminishing factor it always gets worse it only gets worse so the thief comes in but to steal, to steal your trust, to steal your confidence, to steal your faith, to steal your eyesight away from Christ and all that he is promises and to put your eyesight on the immediacy of your pleasure, your satisfaction, your lust, your greed, on the immediacy of the moment. All he asks is just for his little, small investment. 70 pieces of silver, that's all. Little, small investment, just a little bit of your time. Just a few moments of of spending a lustful thought upon a website you have no business going to. Just a little time. Just a little bit. Who's going to know if you indulge in this momentary satisfaction and pleasure right now? Just a little. And it always gets worse. It never, never gets better. Just a small smoke. 
Just a small one. Just a casual indulging in this drug. Just a casual one. Everybody's doing it. No big deal. Nobody gets addicted the first time. Beloved, the enemy comes in and wants to steal. And it never, it never gets better. It only gets worse. And here is Abimelech coming to his people and promising them great things. I'm going to be your king. Just a small little investment is all I need. Why? Because I got some ruthless, some worthless, trifling men. And it don't take much. It don't take much to buy them. Just a small investment. And so Abimelech not only kills, but not only steals, but then he moves on to kill. You see that in verses 4 through 6. With the help of these shady and, and trifling and worthless and reckless companions, whom he hired for cheap out of the temple of Baal, he murders his brothers, 69 in all. He murders them. And then what he's doing here is he's playing his family against each other. He uses his mother's family to go and kill and destroy his father's family. I'm sure his mother's family, once they begin to see all the bloodshed, once they begin to see all the wickedness of Gideon, realize that they had gotten more than they bargained for. Well, that is the nature of sin, isn't it? That's the nature of the enemy. Once they begin to see all the bloodshed, they begin to realize that they had elected a madman to be their king. No, now it was too late. This is what happens when you deal with the devil. This is what happens when you placate sin. Before long, you realize that you have elected a madman as your king. The objective of sin and Satan is always death. Jesus said that the enemy who comes in, who is not the shepherd of the flock, but comes in as a thief, he comes in to steal and he comes in to kill. Gideon stole, I mean, Abimelech stole. And then he killed. And you see it. This is always the objective. No matter how appealing, no matter how attractive, no matter how convincing he or she may be, the goal is death. That's the enemy's objective. That's the enemy's goal. That's sin's objective. That's sin's goal. Your and my death. That's what Satan wants. And he's not satisfied until death reigns, for it is his ultimate weapon. He desires to kill. And he doesn't mind making promises. He doesn't mind making promises and giving a little if it will accomplish his ultimate goal, which is killing us. That's what he wants. Someone has once said, I met the devil once. 
She's the prettiest woman I've ever met in my life. Don't be deceived. The devil that comes to steal, the devil that comes to kill, comes wearing a blue dress, wearing high heels, talking, talking suave and debonair, tall, dark, and handsome. Making promises. Identifying weaknesses. Seeking to fulfill lustful needs and desires. Even in the secret places. But his ultimate objective is death. He wants to kill. And Jesus reminds us that this is what Satan does. He was a murderer from the beginning. And and he was a liar from the beginning. And his objective is to kill. Kill God's people. Kill everything that he comes in touch with. The ultimate goal is death. You see Abimelech manifesting and this working itself out in the nation as he goes about and he engages in these wicked murders. Even his own family. Comes in to steal. He comes in to kill. He comes in to just outright destroy. And this is what Abimelech You see him stealing, you see him killing, and then in verses 7 through 20, we see how he comes in ultimately just to destroy. Abimelech had one brother, had one brother who escaped his slaughter. He had one brother who escaped his slaughter, his murderous hand, and his brother was Jotham, the youngest of Gideon's sons. And when, and when Jotham hears that the people of Shechem has made Gideon king and he, and he hears of Gideon's treacherous, uh, his treacherous acts and he, and he flees from Gideon's hand and he escapes Gideon's hand, he goes up on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain and he tells a parable to the people of Shechem. And he rebukes them in this parable, even curses them in this parable. He reminds them that they have made a deal with the devil. They have taken fire into their bosom. He tells them, essentially, you are now sleeping with the enemy. He tells it to them in a story, a marvelous parable. I had a kick out of this parable every time I read it. It's a wonderful little story, but it is biting. It is to the point. He tells them this this parable, this parable of these trees. These trees are looking for a king. These trees want want someone to rule over them. So, So then what do they do? Well, the trees approach the olive tree and ask the olive tree, would you be king? And the olive tree says, no, I don't want to be king. I am busy doing what God has called me to do. Then since the olive tree doesn't want to be king, they go on and they approach the fig tree and ask the fig tree if the fig tree would be king. And the fig tree likewise says, no, I don't want to be your king. I'm busy doing what God has called me to do. 
Then they, then they go to the vine, and they ask the vine, vine, would you be king over us? And the vine tells a similar story. No, I don't want to be king. I am busy doing what God is calling me to do. Each of these, each of these decline because they have a greater, more our God-ordained purpose than to rule over the other trees. They are busy. Notice that they are busy bearing fruit. They are busy doing what God has called them to do, and that is bearing fruit for the glory of God and the good of the nation. In other words, the, the, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine says, we're not going to rule over you trees. God already rules over all of us. We don't need any other ruler. God rules over us, and he provides even from us the sustenance to sustain and make glad the nation. Enjoy the fruit of the vine that makes the heart glad. Enjoy the figs. Enjoy the olives and the olive oil. You're walking in obedience in the will of God. But the trees are not satisfied. They're not satisfied to have God to rule over them. They absolutely, positively want a king, somebody to rule over them. So what do they do? They go to the bramble bush. They go to the thorn bush. They go to the bramble bush, and they ask the bramble bush if the bramble bush would be their king. You look at the bramble bush, there is no fruit, there is no leaves, there is no shade. The bramble bush is just useless. No fruit, no leaves, no shade. In fact, it is useless except for one thing. The bramble bush has one very good purpose. It's good for starting fires. It is very good for starting fires. And notice what the writer of Proverbs reminds us in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not get burned? Of course not. And as they pull the bramble bush into their chest, be warned, Shechemites, that bramble bush is going to catch fire. And you will get And Jotham warns them, even pronounces this curse over all the people for making such a treacherous and evil deal with Abimelech. Abimelech is a king, all right. He is a king of death and soon will be death to all the leaders of Shechem as well. He has brought death upon his father's house. He has brought death upon his mother's house. He has brought death upon the nation. And ultimately, he is going to bring death upon himself. You know what this account of Abimelech reminds me of, beloved? It reminds me 
Now there are rulers in the world. It reminds me again this morning that everyone is ruled. Everyone is ruled. And if God is not ruling, the enemy is. There are only two kingdoms. There are only two options. You are either in the kingdom of God or you are in the kingdom of Satan. You are either under the control and under the whims and walking in the way of God according to his spirit or you are living out the edicts of the evil one in in captivity to death and sin. There are no other options. Everyone, everyone, everyone is ruled. There's a never-ending battle for the hearts and minds of everyone. Even in here this morning, there is a battle going on for your heart and for your mind. And is the issue, is it the same issue that faced the nation of Israel after the death of Gideon? And the issue is the same for us today. Is it going to be the God of this world who rules and reigns over us? Or is it going to be the God, the only true God of heaven and earth who reigns over us? If God does not rule your heart and your mind, the enemy will. If God does not rule your home, the enemy will. If God is not ruling and reigning over your days and your nights, the enemy will. This is why it is so important that we listen to Jesus where he reminds us that the thief and the enemy comes in but to steal and to kill, and to destroy. But he has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. All of the promises of evil, all of the promises of of the enemy, all of the promises of sin have this end in mind, your destruction. But the promises of Christ are your life. we must always be reminded that Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. He has come to destroy the works of the enemy in your life. He has come and his promises are precious but they're not only precious his promises are true. They don't lead to death. They lead to life. Eternal life. Life more abundantly. Not only in the world to come, beloved, but even in this one now. This is the point. The enemy comes and the enemy takes. Christ comes and Christ gives. 
The enemy comes and the enemy takes. That's the nature of the relationship with the enemy. It is a, it is a relationship of taking. He may give a little bit at first, but ultimately he is in it to take. Sin takes. Sin, sin seeks to destroy your trust. Sin seeks to destroy your faith. Seeks to take away your confidence. To take your joy. And when Christ comes, he comes giving. 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 It's the nature of the relationship with Christ is that Christ gives for God so love the world John 3:16 reminds us that he gave he gives the enemy takes Christ gives the enemy kills Christ is life the enemy kills Christ is life as we've seen the end of the relationship with the enemy is that of death Death to your integrity, death to your faith, death death to your peace, peace, death to your testimony. Three desires. Wants to kill your witness. Like Apollyon standing before Christian on that roll, his aim at that moment is to kill you. That's what sin does, beloved, even to the point of eternal death. But the end of the relationship with Christ is eternal life. He is the giver of life, his life. His life comes to us, and in him we have life. And all of those who are in him, though they were once dead, yet now they live. Because he is the giver of life. He is life. And the life that he gives, beloved, can't be stamped out. For it is eternal life. It is a life that springs up into eternity. It is a life he gives to those who turn from Satan and sin and trust in him. That's the point this morning. Christ has come this morning and is here to offer eternal life. Exchange your sin for his life. Exchange your relationship with Satan for his life. Exchange being under the dominion of this world in exchange for the dominion of his eternal life. Because the enemy comes to take and Christ gives. The enemy comes to kill in Christ's life because the enemy comes to destroy. But Christ gives even right now life more abundantly. The enemy not only wants to destroy your life eternally, but you know he wants to destroy your life right now. He wants to destroy your body. You ever notice the objective of Satan and sin 
is even when it promises pleasure for a moment, ultimately it is not only the destruction of the soul, but it is the destruction of the body. Because the object, the ultimate goal for Satan is addiction. It's addiction. Because the the addiction will not only destroy the soul, but the addiction will begin to wither away at the body. So the person under the reign and the rule of sin and Satan after a while ultimately becomes a shell of the person that God had created them to be. A shell. The withering away of life even now. But when Christ comes, he comes not only that we would have life eternally, but he comes that we would have life now. Where the enemy would have you to wallow in your self-pity. The enemy would have you to exchange your joy for sorrow. The enemy would have you laden down with the guilt and the be paralyzed by your sin. Not willing, not willing to live, but afraid to die. That's what he wants. When Christ comes... And he exchanges your sorrow and he gives you joy. He comes and he lifts the cloud and the burden that is your pity. And he frees you from the guilt of your sin. But the grace of Christ that comes and gives us life is not only that we would know life eternal, but that we would walk in newness of life right now, free from guilt, free from sin. Free from the pains, having a body that is renewed and refreshed. Not only are our, are our souls made alive, but now because God is willing away the sin from us, our bodies are even refreshed. And our minds are renewed. And they set themselves upon the things of God. So that you begin to realize when Christ comes, you no longer live under the condemnation and shame of your sin. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. You no longer have to live for the, at the whims and for the pleasure of other people. But Christ now is your king. And he reigns and he rules because he loves and he gives. No matter what you have done or where you are, here is the message of the loving king who is the shepherd over all his people, who has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly.
So when the enemy comes in like a flood, when the enemy comes in, when the enemy knocks on your door, when the enemy knocks on your heart and seeks to entice you to fall back into sin or to give your life over or to exchange the joy of Christ for the fleeting pleasures of this world, you remind the enemy, my chains are gone and I have been set free. My God and my Savior has ransomed me. You remind them that I have an amazing love. And I still cannot wonder how can it be that Christ, my King, would die for me. Amazing love. And I know it's true, devil. I know it's true, sin. And it's my honor. It's my glory. It's my praise to worship him. Because Jesus is my king. Jesus is my king. I don't need Abimelech's. I don't need all of the sin and the evil kingdoms of this world. Jesus is my king. Oh, beloved, I pray that every person in here this morning can bow their head and say with assurance, Jesus is my king. Because Jesus is my king. Love everybody is ruled. Everybody is ruled. The question is who's your king? Can you say with assurity this morning, Jesus is my king? Jesus is my king. If you got Jesus as your king, you got a good king. You got a loving king. You got a gracious king. You got a glorious king. You got a mighty king. You got an awesome king. Because you got a loving king. Jesus is my king. Let us pray.